As Title 42 expires this week, America is expecting a deluge of immigrants pouring over our border with Mexico. Migrants coming from Europe in this period. So you mm-hmm. see um, a sort of a historic um, level of immigration, um, kind of a historical level that we we still haven't really um, met ever again in terms of the ratio of immigrants versus people who were already here. So Italians, uh, people from Spain, people from Portugal, right, uh, seen as culturally other, seen as undesirable. And the way that uh, that got translated, again, was this narrative of uh, their criminality, their unassimilability, their undesirability. Um, and and uh, we saw sort of this uh, rising tide of eugenics really in the 1920s, right? This notion that there were some races um, and that was constructed as sort of white Northern European races that were desirable, superior. And, and these sanctuary ordinances are pretty clear that they are, uh, they're designed to be compliant with everything that federal law requires. So they're not law-breaking jurisdictions, right? In the sense that they're not going, going rogue. The Secure Communities Program um, is uh, sort of a Department of Homeland Security program um, mm-hmm. that basically says to every state and local law enforcement agent, as well as federal agents, of course, that when you conduct an arrest, um, the fingerprint data comes to us so that we can screen the fingerprints and see uh, whether uh, this is somebody who is of interest to us for purposes of immigration enforcement. I think that's a pretty common trope, right? That uh, Mexican migrants are criminal or there's this association between Mexican migration and crime. And as I said, this is a largely constructed phenomenon, right? And not borne out by data, um, but it is really deeply embedded in the national um, consciousness. Did you know that according to a 2021 Wall Street Journal article that cited research conducted by the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank, crime rates for immigrants living in Texas illegally are lower than those of native-born Americans. (laughs) Let me read that again. Crime rates for immigrants living in Texas illegally are lower than those of native-born Americans. How much lower? According to the study, illegal immigrants are 37% less likely to be convicted of any crime than native-born Americans. Hey there, news peelers. Today is May 12, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. A New York Times article this week featured a photo of a sea of migrants breaking through a fence along the southern border of Mexico with Guatemala. 
most of them will just pass through Mexico, because they are headed to our border. This rise of immigrants heading to our border, as well as those that are already at our border, is largely because Title 42 expired this week. Title 42 was a pandemic-era public health measure that allowed the swift expulsion of many migrants at the southern border. So now, migrants believe it will be much easier for them to stay in the U.S. And these migrants include Haitians, Venezuelans, as well as those from China and Angola. By the way, if you want to know how it is that Title 42 took such a prominent role in our immigration policy, starting with Mr. Trump's administration, the Wall Street Journal produced an excellent podcast about it this week, and for your convenience, I'll provide a link to that Wall Street Journal podcast in the detailed caption of this episode. The strains of migration through our southern border are not limited to the border states of Arizona, Texas, New Mexico, and California. They're felt as far away as Chicago, which identifies itself as a sanctuary city. And the pressure on the resources of U.S. cities is expected to increase rapidly now that Title 42 has ended. As number of migrants swell in U.S. cities, such as Chicago, some Americans are asking this. Will we be safe? Will crime rates increase? This question comes with its own history, dating back to the 19th century, when Catholic and Jewish and Chinese immigrants flooded our cities. And the same questions were asked by Americans then. Will we be safe? Will crime rates increase? To better understand the history of U.S. immigration and its correlation with crime, criminal procedure, and religious and racial biases, back in 2021, I spoke with Professor Jennifer Chacon. It's a conversation that is relevant and highly informative today. In this conversation, Professor Chacon brings focus to the history of eugenics in the context of immigration and answers questions like, what is a sanctuary city and how is it different than secure communities? And what is immigration paradox? At the time of our conversation, back in 2021, Professor Chacon was a professor of law at UC Berkeley. She's now at Stanford University Law School, where she researches issues that arise at the nexus of immigration law, constitutional law, and criminal law and procedure. She's the co-author of the Immigration Law textbook titled Immigration Law and Social Justice, which is now in its second edition, and the co-author of a forthcoming book exploring how the past decades shifting immigration policies have shaped and been shaped by immigrant communities and organizations in Southern California. Professor Chacon was a co-convener of the Immigration Policy Advisory Committee to then-Senator Barack Obama during his 2008 presidential campaign and an outside advisor to the immigration transition team of President-elect Obama from November 2008 through January 2009. A link to Professor Chacon's academic homepage, which includes a list of our publications and accomplishments, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Professor Chacon and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Chacon, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. In the last several years, particularly during Mr. Trump's administration, 
The political narrative that immigrants increase crime in America has gained currency, at least among some anti-immigrant groups. We'll, we'll dissect that in a moment, whether or not it's actually true or false, right? What I want to know first is, have we been here before in our history? In the past, have political movements blame immigrants for crime in America? Yeah, I think, um, thank you, first of all, for, for having me here. And my for, pleasure. You know, taking on this important set of issues. Um, it is important. You're right. The, yeah. And, and I, I feel like you, you're right. We are in a moment where there is uh, sort of a uh, pretty uh, vocal um, anti-immigrant animus and a lot of the conversation um, in those anti-immigrant spheres turns on um, notions of criminality, right, that, that immigrants are prone to commit crimes. And, and you're exactly right to say that we've been here before. We have. Um, and so <laughs> many times, oh <laughs> this, is, this is not new um, in U.S. history. And, um, and I think it's really useful um, to think about uh, the ways that, um, although there's this narrative that we have about being a nation of immigrants and being sort of inclusive and, um, and open, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we've definitely gone through many periods in our history, um, in, in fact, maybe more, more often than not, um, where uh, we are instead sending unwelcoming signals um, and where um, incoming um, immigrants are treated um, harshly um, and where they're surrounded by a rhetoric of uh, criminality. So we saw this in the late 19th century um, with Chinese exclusion. Uh, the narrative around Chinese immigrants was that they were criminals, that they were, uh, that they were sex workers, drug users, um, unable to assimilate. Um, and so we saw um, you know, that, that narrative of, of, uh, of does the term um, Does the term Chinese exclusion, is that, does that term come from a certain act? Is it, is it a, does it have a definition? Yeah. Yeah, so in, in uh, the 1880s, Congress enacted a federal law called the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, and oh, wow. that's what it was. It was a law that barred uh, the immigration of Chinese people. Um, and so, and it was, it not only barred them, but then it also, um, it, it included some measures um, to ensure that people who were here, who were Chinese, um, if they didn't have the right papers, um, could be deported. Um, so this was an early, this is kind of an early example yeah. uh, of, uh, of the federal government sort of targeting um, an immigrant group on the basis of race, um, trumping up narratives about uh, their unassimilability, about their criminality, and then using federal law um, in order to target them. Um, and in fact, what we know of that time, um, you'll remember this was the era of the gold rush. This was the era of some, you know, in the, in the 1880s, the economic collapse. Right, and there was there was uh, definitely hostility um, at economic tensions um, between uh, white people moving west um, and uh, and Chinese workers, um, and so this what was really sort of friction around jobs and the economy and and current concerns about as sort of economic um, displacement um, got uh, sort of translated into this story of uh, Chinese immigrant criminality, and then. Uh, 
first California enacted or tried to enact laws and provisions that would limit immigration. It was kind of popular in the West. And then uh, Congress got on board and you had a federal law um, that was in place uh, for decades um, that barred Chinese immigration. So that's an early example of mm-hmm. the federal government getting involved, um, sort of uh, using that narrative. And then uh, we saw it again um, in the 1920s, um, sort of very expansively. Uh, the 1920s expansively. Expansively, in the sense that Chinese exclusion was still in place um, and so had sort of uh, expanded over time to a, a sort of pan Asian exclusion. So, pretty much nobody um, from uh, most countries in Asia were able to immigrate at that time. And then in the 1920s, we saw attention turn to uh, groups, immigrant groups from Europe um, that some in the United States saw as undesirable. Um, and so, we saw uh, the uh, enactment of a quota system. What do you mean by Europe, immigrants from uh, Europe? Are we talking yeah. all of Europe or are there? No, <laughs> we're talking selectively. So um, Such as? As you, uh, really focusing on Southern Europeans, um, on uh, Jewish immigrants. Um, so there was a real. And Southern Europeans are predominantly Catholic, right? Uh, they're yes, yeah, so they're they're Catholic, uh, and they were they were viewed as culturally other. So Italians, uh, people from Spain, people from Portugal, right, cult, uh, seen as culturally other, seen as undesirable. And the way that uh, that got translated again was this narrative of uh, their criminality, their unassimilability, their undesirability, um, and and uh, we saw sort of this. Uh, rising tide of eugenics really in the 1920s, right? This notion that there were some races um, and that was constructed as sort of white Northern European races that were desirable, superior. And then there were other in races in, in America. Yes, this is this is rising sort of tide of eugenics in America in the 20s. And then other races were sort of bringing them down, right? So we saw uh, kind of uh, increasing uh, hostility toward Italian immigration, uh, Southern European immigration, but also toward Mexican migration. You saw there for the first time in the 1920s, the criminalization of uh, of uh, illegal entry and felony reentry on the Southern border, right? And that was, that was targeting Mexican migration. And the idea was, these people are coming and they're watering down our superior racial stock. Um, and so you see those laws heating up at the same time that you see many anti-miscegenation laws, laws that prohibit interracial marriage, also heating up, um, uh, you know, and, and being wow. um, uh, being strengthened and being enforced more rigorously um, across states, particularly in the South. So it was really uh, a sort of uh, movement about racial purity, a eugenics movement about racial purity that gets translated into rhetoric about undesirability and criminality um, and, and then gets given the force of law. Right. In the form of in the 1920s, a quota system and the quota system basically said, uh, we're going to favor immigrants who are already um, overrepresented in the population. So uh, that will favor people who are uh, immigrating from Britain. It'll uh, favor uh, people immigrating from northern Europe. It will disfavor people immigrating from southern Europe. And and uh, of course, uh, conveniently, um, although there were plenty of people who had been forcibly brought uh, from Africa, and so there's substantial Black representation in yeah. the United States, they're left out of the quota system completely, right? They're not treated uh, as having these familial ties or as, as you know, uh, part of the counting system uh, when it comes to the quotas. Um, I, I hope this is not off topic, and I'm speaking somewhat from memory. In the 1920s, correct me if I'm wrong, there was this, uh, was it a study? Was it a congressional body that got together? 
the Dillingham Commission? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that was a part of the response to growing concerns about um, migration. Um, as you know, um, there was a real uh, substantial expansion in migrants coming from Europe in this period. So you mm -hmm. see um, a sort of a historic um, level of immigration, um, kind of a historical level that we we still haven't really um, met ever again in terms of the ratio of immigrants versus people who were already here. Um, and so that really caused a lot of unease, cultural unease, um, economic displacement and unrest. Um, and so there was this commission put together under uh, Teddy Roosevelt's administration um, to study uh, this question of whether immigration was good or bad for the country. Um, did, and, did, did crime play a part in that? <laughs> yeah, and and that so that was part of the notion, right? That there were that there were gangs, that some people were more prone to criminality, that some people were um, more dangerous inherently. And you can see in that um, sort of framing um, the way that eugenics is already playing a role, right? So the nation, dangerous the notion inherently, <laughs> both because they're immigrants and because they're of certain ethnicity or race. Did I, did I say that correctly? Yeah. So these are linked notions, right? It's not yeah. just that they're coming in, but that that certain kinds of people are coming in that have been racialized, right? That, that there's a notion that these people are inferior. Um, and so, so the Dilling Commission, it sets about to study the question. They wrote a multi-volume report um, that, um, you know, makes a series of findings. Was it a diverse a commission? <laughs> <laughs> with all white men? It, it's yeah. largely white people. Uh, yeah. It is interesting a lot of women were employed by the Dillingham Commission, so there oh, is <laughs> there is gender diversity well, here. Good for them, at least that's a positive, right? <laughs> uh, right. So there's lots of you know lots of people gathering data, uh -huh. um, but the the sort of the the narrative um, that they were that they were sort of charged with investigating sort of set the tone for what they found. Um, and ultimately the Dillingham Commission's um, findings were used to, to justify uh, the use of a racial quota system um, in immigration. Did they find um, that immigrants contribute to an increase in crime? Was that their finding? I think what it, the so it's a lengthy report. Um, and I think what they had what they were looking at were questions of, you know, were they, uh, were, were immigrants more likely to be involved in criminal activity? Were they more likely to, to use welfare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and of course the, the way that the study was done sort of presupposed many of the answers, <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. right. They're, they're looking for certain kinds of uh, criminal behavior among certain populations and they're able to find it. Um, and so I, I, it, I think the, the kind of the, the social scientific soundness of findings that immigrants commit crime as, you know, as interpreted through the eyes of the Dillingham Commission are quite questionable given the sort of eugenics lens from which they started, right? Yeah. Um, and, th and that sort of brings, I think, us to think bigger questions about how we define crime and when we worry about crime and what kinds of crimes we worry about. Um, and, and I think there again, you can see the way that, you know, certain kinds of uh, drug use gets penalized differently from other kinds of drug use. Certain kinds of people get policed differently from other kinds of people. And that was true, of course, in the era of the Dillingham Commission as it is today. T today, um, yeah. And so it, it just, when we sort of, when our when our question is, you know, do they commit more crime? And we assume that crime is defined neutrally and criminal laws enforced neutrally, we've already missed part of the picture, right? We have to ask not just 
do people commit more crimes, but also what are we defining as crimes? Which conduct are, are, are we defining as crimes? And who are we policing for that conduct? Is it kids on college, college campuses um, or people uh, living in impoverished neighborhoods, right? If, <laughs> yeah. and, and where we put police and how we police the conduct also determines crime rates. And that was true then. And it's true now, but it means that when you ask a question like, do immigrants commit more crimes, uh, there are ways uh, to look at that data and come to the answers uh, that you want. Um, and the Dillingham Commission was looking for particular kinds of answers in that regard. It sounds like historically in the late 19th century and early 20th century, uh, these studies and laws I'm, I'm saying the obvious here almost, um, we're not geared towards blonde hair, blue eyed Swedish people. That's correct. Right. They, so they had certain <laughs> groups in mind when they did these studies, that's you know, correct. back then, Sicilians, whatever, Spanish, Spanish as in from Spain or, or Chinese. Interesting. And a great deal of anti-Semitism underlying. Uh, of course, of yes. And, yeah. and, 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 and Jewish um, immigrants that came from Eastern Europe uh, in particular. Why don't we take a short break here and then talk about immigration and crime in recent years? Governor Abbott of Texas is becoming more vocal and assertive about controlling the rising tide of immigrants at the Texas border with Mexico. But this begs the following question. Can a state such as Texas or say Arizona implement and enforce immigration policies, some of which may be in contrast to and clash with federal immigration laws. This is an important constitutional question that tests the limits of federalism, which is one of the foundational tenets of our country's system of government. To better understand this history, join me in the first week of June in conversation with a law professor who specifically studies the subject and has written extensively about it. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Chacon. Professor Chacon, recently the Cato Institute published a research study about the correlation between immigration and crime of all states in Texas, uh, which is currently in the news about immigration. That research got a super brief, tiny little mention in the Wall Street Journal, but its findings are pretty darn interesting, uh, particularly since the study was commissioned by the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian, um, sort of conservative-leaning institution. You and I discussed this study, um, and it basically said that crimes conducted by immigrants, uh, I'm paraphrasing, has a lower rate in Texas in the year 2019 and before. Um, love to hear your feedback on that. Yeah, so this is, I think, pretty consistent with what most of the studies um, on consistent and, and consistent with what most studies on immigration and crime show. So I think Therese Kubrin at UCI has done sort of a meta study where she sort of has looked at all of the empirical studies. Could you repeat her name, on. please? Uh, Sharis Kubrin, K-U-B-R-I-N is her name. Thank She's you. at UC Irvine, um, and she has. Uh, sort of looked at all of the studies that have been done on this question, right? Do immigrants commit more crimes, which is often the framing for questions about um, immigration policy. And she reveals that it's kind of the data is, is quite consistent um, that, you know, how, however you slice it, uh, immigrants commit 
crimes at lower rates than other native-born counties. It's so consistent. How come we never hear about it? <laughs> well, I think... I'm telling because... you, it was a tiny little note in the Wall Street Journal. I, I, yeah. I, it was not a headline. I may have just missed it had I not looked closely enough. Yeah. I mean, I think we're so used to hearing this narrative, right? Because we, it is one that is very popular, right? The, the, the notion that outsiders, that crime must be, and disorder must be brought by outsiders is a pretty common and intuitive, I think, um, uh, thing. And yeah. particularly given uh, the sort of racial narratives that often attach to immigrants, it's perhaps unsurprising that these are sort of comfortable stories that uh, people tell themselves about why uh, immigration is bad. It just doesn't line up with any of the data. Um, so yeah, so uh, uh, on that front, uh, yeah. So I, I think there we can really see the way that um, sort of myth-making around immigrants, uh, the way that sort of racialized myth-making around immigrants is doing a lot of work, um, even when the data is not itself doing that work. Um, when it comes to immigration, there are a few terminologies that have, especially recently, been politicized and are quite polarizing. I'll identify some here for you, Professor Chacon, and I appreciate your explanation of those terms for me and the audience. What does the term immigration paradox mean? So this is, um, it comes out of social science research that shows that uh, new immigrants um, uh, tend to uh, in, in some ways kind of outperform uh, or overperform, um, you know, when it comes to metrics uh, like, uh, you know, not committing crimes um, versus those who have been here longer. So second and third generation um, uh, residents, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, so there's the, there's the, the paradox, I suppose, is, is that sort of the longer people are here, um, <laughs> sort of um, worse they're performing um, on these metrics. Um, and it's it's controversial, I think, to, to talk about it and think about it in this way. We can think about all of the reasons of kind of the ex exclusionary practices um, that might lead to this paradox, that might lead to some immigrant communities thriving and others not um, that might, that, that might sort of be driving some of the results here. But I think one of the kind of clear pictures to take out of it is that people who are coming into the country are not sort of inherently um, <laughs> uh, unable yeah, um, yeah. to perform, right? What, what, what this data should be telling us is that people who are coming in are coming in um, and are kind of hitting the metrics of success um, that we are, uh, that we are sort of primed to look for in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of productivity, in terms of um, not being involved in the criminal legal system, right? They're doing those things as they come in the door. Um, and that's not the story that we hear. Um, and then uh, we find that in later generations, um, we see people sort of falling away from that. Um, and so the question then is what to do with that information. So one thing we could do with that information is, is to say, see, look, they come <laughs> and then they deteriorate, which is, a, is something about them. Um, or we could say, maybe this says something about us, um, right? The people who uh, sort of, us that like all people are, are inherently capable of, of performing um, and of, uh, of being part of the community are, are kind of confronting systems where they're not able to thrive. Um, and and what, what do we need to do about that? I see. What does there, there are two more terms, if I may ask them, uh, please. What are sanctuary cities? I remember during Mr. Trump's presidency, this came out so many times. Yeah. 
It's a it's a term that is uh, it's it doesn't really have a, a one concrete definition. So mm-hmm. here's how I I think about them uh, as non cooperating jurisdictions is the way that I would non cooperating. Who are they? Non cooperating. Non cooperating. Right. So and I say that because sanctuary suggests that people go there and they are safe. From all things, so when we sure, think about yeah. sanctuary jurisdiction, or when we think about kind of people seeking sanctuary in a church, you go into the church, and it means you're sort of untouchable. Nobody can come in and get you. You are yeah. safe. Yeah. Um, and so I think people, uh, when they use the term sanctuary city, um, it can lead to the idea that individuals who are there are not um, subject to immigration enforcement; that they are that they're uh, totally safe. And in fact, that's not uh, how sanctuary cities operate, uh, even at the most expansive level. Um, The federal government continues to enforce immigration law in sanctuary jurisdictions. Um, What sanctuary jurisdictions have done is they've tried to limit the extent to which their own uh, officials are part of the immigration enforcement operation. So that means, for for example, uh, if if, uh, uh, a local police officer conducts an arrest um, and the person is cleared of the charges, uh, rather than... um, holding the person at the request of the Department of Homeland Security, um, they would say, okay, we don't have a basis to hold them anymore. If you want them, you can arrest them, but it's not our job to voluntarily hold them for you until you decide what you want to do on the immigration side. So it's non-cooperation in the sense that they're refusing, uh, not refusing um, kind of what they're legally required to do, but refusing what they're uh, they're sort of permitted to do or or have discretion to do uh, in order to further immigration. What are a couple of examples of sanctuary cities? uh, So I think, uh, you know, we could think in sort of where in Orange County, um, uh, Santa Ana very early on passed Uh an ordinance um, that was a sanctuary ordinance that basically said, we're just not going to comply with voluntary requests to enforce immigration law. That doesn't mean the federal government can't enforce Exactly. So in that sense, it's not like a sanctuary as it's walled in and you can go in and be safe. It's just they're not going to go along with federal policies on immigration. Okay. And and these sanctuary ordinances are pretty clear that they are uh, they're designed to be compliant with everything that federal law requires. So they're not law-breaking jurisdictions, right? In the sense that they're not going going rogue, um, but they're saying within the space that federal law allows. Um, where federal law does not require us um, to engage in affirmative acts of cooperation. That's why um, you were saying we, voluntarily. I see. So they're not going rogue. They're not breaking any federal law. That's right. Got it. And there have been lawsuits to sort of, uh, you know, police that boundary, right? There's, there's gray area there where, what does federal law require? What do you have to do? Um, But, but it is not an effort to, to break federal law. It's merely an effort to separate um, federal immigration enforcement from the actions of local governments. And this is often supported by um, police chiefs um, and police officers who, uh, worry that if uh, the communities that they're policing don't trust them or think that they, <laughs> they are part of the immigration enforcement apparatus. They're not going to uh, go to them for help. It makes it much harder for them uh, to have any community trust. Um, so s- sanctuary jurisdictions aren't <laughs> just sort of um, a sort rad- a notion of the radical left, um, yeah. but it's also a notion that's been embraced by a lot of local officials because it makes their job possible. If educators don't, if kids aren't coming to school 
because they're worried about immigration enforcement, that's a problem for educators. If people aren't going to hospitals because they're worried about immigration enforcement, that's a problem for public health. Um, so there's a way in which sanctuary jurisdictions are designed in part to say there's a, there are local governmental functions that are necessary for us to perform in order to keep our communities safe. And that requires a degree of detachment um, from the uh, immigration enforcement apparatus uh, as, uh, as permitted by federal law. If they don't, conduct, uh, provide those services and conduct those functions with immigrants, uh, some of which I suppose are illegal, uh, the community will be worse for it. Yeah. So we can think about things like COVID, right? Like yeah, we, exactly. we, can try to, we can try to draw lines between documented and undocumented residents. But at the end of the day, if people are unvaccinated, um, it doesn't really matter what their immigration status is. Yeah. It's bad for everybody uh, when, when, when we have a unvaccinated community member. Unless you so think a, COVID is a hoax. <laughs> unless you think COVID is a hoax, <laughs> oh, which, a which some do. And I'm not one of those people. Yeah, neither <laughs> am I, Professor <laughs> Does the term sanctuary cities, is it different than the term secure communities or are they pretty much the same? So Secure Communities um, is a federal program. Um, it was rolled out, it's, it, the rollout really began at the very end of the administration, the second term of George W. Bush, so 2008. Um, and, the, and then it was rolled out in full um, under the early Obama administration, 2009 to 2013. Mm -hmm. And this, the Secure Communities program um, is uh, sort of a Department of Homeland Security program um, mm -hmm. that basically says, to every state and local law enforcement agent, as well as federal agents, of course, that when you conduct an arrest, um, the fingerprint data comes to us so that we can screen the fingerprints and see uh, whether uh, this is somebody who is of interest to us for purposes of immigration enforcement. That's what Secure Communities is. Um, and so we it was already the case that fingerprints went to the FBI, right? So if a, a someone in the state of Texas conducted an arrest for a Texas offense and they ran fingerprints for the arrestee, that person's fingerprints would also be sent to the FBI to see if there were any federal crimes or crimes in other states, um, right, that, that required uh, some sort of investigation. So now with secure communities, the fingerprints also go to the Department of Homeland Security um, and the Department of Homeland Security then, uh, if they're interested in um, enforcing immigration law against the person who's been arrested, uh, they can communicate that to the state or local government and say, we're interested, um, hold uh, this individual. Um, so that's the Secure Communities Program. That sounds it's, nothing like sanctuary. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite, right? It's, <laughs> in, opposite. in some I ways, mean. sanctuary... <laughs> sanctuary jurisdictions in some ways were popping up sort of in order to um, combat what they saw as the over-inclusive uh, effects of some of the Secure Communities Program. Because you can, if you think about it, a person who's arrested, right, may be arrested and never charged, right? It might be that there's no actual crime there. And yet that arrest, um, you know, even if unsubstantiated, even if never charged, even if it never results in a conviction, that arrest alone triggers the possibility of deportation for some people, right? So, um, so, so the worry is maybe this is too much. And this is where you saw sanctuary jurisdictions saying, look, we know the fingerprint data is going to get shared if we conduct arrests. Um, but that means that we should be more careful about how we conduct arrests. And it also means that if DHS requests that we do additional work for them, we might not 
<laughs> we, we, might, we, we might just decide that this is not a community priority. It's not somewhere we want to spend our money. It's not how we want to spend our jail resources, right? Um, so, uh, so that's where you get the sanctuary pushback. So when we think about sanctuary cities, it's not really something that springs up under Trump. When you really see it start to take off, it's under the Obama administration in response to the secure communities rollout. And then it gains a lot of traction under Trump, in part because the rhetoric got so much. I think me and probably most Americans heard about it during Mr. Trump's administration, right? That's when the lawsuits and it really they became sort of villainized, if you will, uh, these these communities. to just conclude that little segment, secure communities is nothing like sanctuary cities. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are two different things. <laughs> yeah, all right. We'll be back after a short break to talk um, more about the perceived correlation between immigration and crime, as well as any collection data on this important subject. <music> Professor Chacon. Are there differences in correlation of crime or perhaps perceived correlation of crime with different immigrant groups? Does, does my question make sense? Yeah, I understand the question and I'm not sure I have a good answer for you. I think there's certainly, there are stories uh, or, or narr- yeah, there, there, perceptions perception, of, there you of, go. of yeah. migrant criminality, right? So um, I think, you could, you could sort of get a sense of some of that um, when Trump announced his presidential campaign by, you know, his his off the escalator speech was about Mexicans, how they yeah. don't they they don't bring their best, they're bringing drugs, that they're quote unquote rapists, right? Some of us, he assumed, I suppose, were good people, <laughs> but generally, right? <laughs> that, that that was that was the narrative. So that's I think that's a pretty common trope, right? That that that. Uh, Mexican migrants are criminal or there's this association between Mexican migration and crime. And as I said, this is a largely constructed phenomenon, right? And not borne out by data, um, but it is really deeply embedded in the national um, consciousness. We also saw, um, I think, particularly with uh, Attorney General Sessions under Trump, uh, the sort of uh, flaming of stories about Central American gangs um, and this kind of uh, broad brush painting of every migrant from Central yeah, America, yeah, particularly, particularly young male migrants from Central America, as gang members, right? So, so there's definitely, and and this, you know, to take us back to uh, the you know the 1920s and the early 1900s uh-huh. and the late the, the late 1800s, right? That that notion of gangs and migration, right, or, or migrants is particularly sort of um, invested in gang activity. That is something that we see as a as a recurring um, theme um, in American history. So yes, I think not all immigrant groups are seen as the same um, and some groups benefit from that um, and some groups are harmed by that. In response to my question, and I'm paraphrasing here, you said, I'm not sure how to answer that question because, and this is the point, Professor Chacon, because presumably for lack of data, right? We we, We don't know, which really brings me to a, interesting find that I had in the Cato uh, Institute report that I shared with you. Um, And in it, there was a line that really intrigued me. I'll just read that line for you. It goes as such, as far as we've been able to tell, 
and we filed more than 50 state FOIA. Freedom of Information Act. (laughs) There you go. Yes, I should have known that. 50 state FOIA request to confirm Texas is the only state that records and keeps the immigration statuses of those entering the criminal justice system. This, I was blown away by this. Why is Texas the only state that does that? New York, Florida, California, Arizona. Is yeah. That, are you familiar with this? Why, why is this the case? So, I mean, it is, I, I, one thing we should say is that criminal legal systems across the country are not great at retaining data, period. Uh, on any metric, whether that, (laughs) uh, uh, when it comes to- Even in the 21st century? Even in the 21st century, when it comes to things like race, nationality, um, sort of demographic characteristics, it's often incredibly difficult um, to get good data um, Mm -hmm. out of criminal legal system. And the other thing to flag is that because we have 50 states and then uh, literally tens of thousands of police forces in this country, every jurisdiction retains data differently. So it it makes social science in this area very challenging, right? You don't have one set of statistics about everybody who uh, who is charged with a crime. You have whatever Texas decides to collect versus whatever Florida collects versus whatever California collects, um, and that those things don't always match up and line up. So that's a difficult thing. Um, but you're right; it is it is somewhat intriguing, and I I was unaware until you told me uh, that Texas is the only jurisdiction that they were able to find at least that retains this data. So that's interesting to me, like what, you know, and so I'm going to, you know, our show is about the history and background behind the news, but I'm going to get a little bit, just a tinsy into politics and news here. Uh, This is speculation. Uh, I love to get your feedback. Uh, Do you think this is a case where Texas started collecting this data? I don't know, perhaps to show that immigrants commit more crimes, but then it backfired. It shows that they actually commit less crimes. I, this is, I'm not this in Texas. I'm just trying to figure this out. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that, that may very well have been uh, what went on. I mean, we can think also about the way that, uh, you know, President Trump very early on in his administration says we're going to have a, you know, an agency that collects data on crimes committed by unauthorized immigrants, right? That was going to be sort of a cornerstone thing. And, you know, unauthorized immigrants do commit crimes, but not... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not at any, uh, um, you know, not at any high rates, right? But so I think again, the data collection sometimes the 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 goals or the objectives of the, of the data collection are questionable, right? And 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 that may be the case here too. It, it, even if it didn't ultimately line up with what they found, it may have been that they were <laughs> they were looking for particular yeah. patterns. and that's a total of speculation. I don't. I, I'm. I went on a limb over there when I suggested. Yeah, that. and I don't know. I don't know when they started collecting that data. So I don't I, you know, I don't know what what drove it. Um, but I do suspect it. It was motivated by sort of exclusionary desires, yeah. right? Like we we have to be able to document um, costs of crime, and uh, and and that will be able to further a narrative. Let's take a break here. Um, stay with me and Professor Chacon as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Chacon, 
why does this false narrative that immigrants are responsible for increasing crime rates, and you said there's just no data to support that, continue for more than a century? And 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 children and grandchildren of immigrants are saying it now, you know? Um, yeah. The very ones that were 50, 60 years ago accused of this, falsely accused of this, are now saying it regarding other immigrant groups. Yeah. Yeah, I, this, <laughs> this seems to keep happening. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think, so why does it persist? I think partly because people, you know, are, are inherently um, threatened by strangers. Right. That's it's it's biological yeah. and it's uh, it's eternal. Um, and so it, it then becomes very natural um, to assume um, that outsiders, strangers, people we don't know um, aren't like us and are threatening to us. So I think because of that, when politicians um, sort of are looking for a scapegoat, um, immigrants are a really good and easy scapegoat. Right. Because they are the stranger. Um, and they and, also don't and, vote, and, right? And they don't vote. Yeah. Um, right? <laughs> they can't vote. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it becomes really easy. And I think we saw this probably most pointedly recently with um, the spikes in COVID rates uh, in places like Texas and Florida um, and the governors of both of those states blaming migrants with, again, sort of zero evidence that there's really any connection between uh, immigrant flow and uh COVID infection rates, and, and we could look to a lot of other factors in those states, bans on mask mandates, um, you know, failures of vaccination rates, um, right? There's lots of other things going on. Um, but it was easy to just sort of point to immigrants as the source of the problem, as a source of disease, as the source of crime, as the source of disorder, um, because that's sort of a natural tendency to not not look inside, not look at what um, what our neighbors and our friends and our family members might be doing to cause harm, um, but to look outside for the source of the harm. So that's why I think it's a potent makes narrative. makes immigrants easy targets because they're they're relatively speaking powerless. Yeah, compared, yeah, they're po yeah. Po politically uh, marginalized, exactly, um, and often often racially marginalized as well, right? So uh, so those two things together, I think, um, sort of make this an easy. Uh, an easy we, system for scapegoating. We, we recently had a podcast episode with Professor Carrie Baker of Smith College about the history of sexual harassment. And she highlighted that in the history of sexual harassment, um, Black women and immigrants bore the front brunt of it because they were, relatively speaking, politically powerless. Right. So this 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 also plays out with the narrative of immigration and 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 blaming them for crime. Interesting, um, Professor Chacon, having lived in a border town yourself, uh, El Paso, Texas, is there anything relevant to our discussion from your own uh, life experiences that you wish to share? Oh, lots of things. Um, <laughs> I, get to I, know me. Get to know I, me. <laughs> I can I can think of just a couple of things that leap to mind. So Please. one is one is um, it, and it's something that you said a few minutes ago. You said you know people who are the children of immigrants who are sort of second and third generation are the ones who are spreading the anti-immigrant yeah. <laughs> narrative, right? I that they bought the into it. That they've decided that they you know that they are. Uh, they are the good people that need to sort of exclude the bad. And growing up on a border town, I saw that. So second generation Mexican Americans um, suddenly worried about 
Mexican migration. So I think one Second thing. Second generation. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's just one <laughs> you know, step away. Right. One step removed and, and hardly geographically removed. So I think one thing that, you know, that, that is, is, it's important to remember that because it's not that demographics are going to shift the way that we think about immigration, right? Um, we all are you know, susceptible, I think, to, to these forms of thinking. To this is going to happen process. over and over again, then. So <laughs> in, in, unless we, unless we strengthen our education around, yeah. uh, around uh, immigration, uh, then we will, we will just continue to see these patterns play out again and again. So that's one uh, point that I would make. And the second point that I would make is just that oh, I grew up in El Paso in the 70s and 80s. I moved away for college and for law school. I And when I moved away, so I was far from the border, I was always stunned at the way that people talked about the border as this kind of site of chaos and disorder and um, and crime um, and uh, you know, a place that was sort of in need of a strong federal presence. That's which, sort of the general perception. Yeah, right? which did not resonate with my experience <laughs> growing up on the border um, where my city was quite safe. Um, you know, it, if you look at sort of crime statistics, they're very low. Um, and so it's it's interesting to me that it's often as you move further away from the border that the horror stories about um, the place that is the border become more um, powerful. Um, and, it, and, and I think it's worth um, sort of thinking about the fact that millions of people um, live and work on the border and live and work across the border in terms of their family members and their communities um, every day. Um, and that it's it's just another place um, and that um, sort of viewing it as uh, pathological and exceptionally violent um, is problematic and uh, a, a really bad way uh, to make policy. The, the, is El Paso and other border towns, uh, are they still uh, vibrant? Uh, this this question is sounding so stupid. I already, I already know, but they still. I'm, I'm I'm following your narrative, Dr. Chacon. But they're still vibrant, safe places for millions to live, despite all that we've yeah. been talking about politically in the last five years. So first, I have to say I'm not a doctor. I don't have my PhD. I'm sorry, Professor society, Chacon. No, no, no I, I I appreciate the honorific. I just have not earned it. <laughs> um, and. Uh, I, I, are they still vibrant places? Yes. I mean, I think one of the things that's fascinating, though, is to watch how that landscape has been militarized, right? So that's, I... that's, that's my question. <laughs> that's where my question yeah. comes from. Like 200, uh, I don't have the figure in front of me, uh, Professor Chacon, but uh, I, I think July was the highest arrest rate in the last 20 some years of immigrants entering. So when you hear these things, you really think of these border towns as being as you said, militarized zones almost. Yeah. Yeah. So we've spent literally billions of dollars on fencing and uh, technologies and people um, to police that border space. Um, and I think many of those billions of dollars um, would have been better spent uh, trying to uh, ensure that people have safe homes that they don't need to leave um, in communities across Latin America, um, and that when they do leave and do need to leave, um, that we have uh, an immigration system that treats them humanely and um, and processes their often legitimate um, claims effectively. And what we've done instead is just sort of uh, gone for the 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 wall solution, um, whether that's a physical wall that 
Trump talked about or the kind of increased presence of border patrol agents at the border that we've seen under every administration, really, uh, from Clinton on. Um, it's changed the shape of the border um, and it's changed the face of the border. And uh, it, it, it does have an impact on communities. Um, and it isn't one uh, that seems to have borne out or been worth the price tag. Um, it seems like there are better ways to spend that kind of money. I want to close our podcast conversation with uh, the following question. Do you think that immigrant activists and the immigration community in general, um, there are many rich immigrants as well uh, from all sorts of races, have just done a poor job of promoting themselves, promoting their cause. For example, we just spend a whole almost hour talking about how this data about immigrants increasing crime rate. I mean, this narrative is bogus. Data doesn't support it. Yet I found it in a tensy little sort of side note in the Wall Street Journal. You would think something that debunks a major political narrative would be plastered in, in, in you know, headline news, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Uh, maybe I'm just a super nerd, but I don't think so. It was a major political news. So do you think immigrants are doing a poor job of promoting themselves, marketing themselves, or are or, or these immigrant sort of support institutions that are, that are, um, that are sort of driven by uh, citizens, U.S. citizens are not marketing themselves properly? I know we're going on a tangent, but it's such a, it's such a <laughs> yeah. sort of a, a seg, just a continuation of our conversation here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I wouldn't be one to criticize immigrant serving organizations or activists. No, no, it wasn't meant as a criticism as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I and I think sometimes, I, you know, I sometimes they worry and I worry that if you sort of seize on the narrative that, hey, we're not criminals, <laughs> you've already bought into a couple of problematic things. <laughs> Right. You've bought into the notion that like the criminal legal system is functioning the way it should. And you are, so not. you give it legitimacy by bringing it up. Right. Interesting. And, and, and we all know that's a problematic system. Right. We've been talking about that certainly for the last 18 months. There's been a national yes. conversation about yes, that. Yes, yes. Um, and so I think, you know, there is some reluctance to sort of double down on that story. Um, because how that's an crime is identified and point, prosecuted yeah. and punished um, isn't always fair. Um, and so to then say, well, that should be the metric that we use to measure people's worth. Um, that can be problematic, right? Um, so I think that's that's a worry. Um, and that and and so I think the the pivot has to be uh, not so much like we don't commit crime, um, but that we're part that's of a terrible this message community. to come out and say. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're part of this community, right? Yeah, that we, yeah, yeah. we work here, we live here, we love here. Yeah. Um yeah. and 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 um that the fate of the nations that we've come from are deeply interconnected with the with the fate of this nation, right? And when we think about sort of US intervention in Central America, US economic imperialism in Mexico, US intervention in places like Afghanistan, we can see the way that the 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 kind of the people who are coming here are often coming here because they have been touched by uh, U.S. policy. Um, and so that, to me, is a really important part of the story. People yeah. are often surprised. Why are they coming here? What, you know, what, we don't want them here. Why can't, we don't want them here. Can't they leave us alone? And I think often the answer is, 
well, you didn't leave us alone. Exactly. <laughs> right? There are that. ways in which these histories and fates are interconnected. And we really have to see that to understand um, that it's not that we're sitting here in isolation and people are coming and we should decide whether they get to come in or not, but that instead we are working in this sort of deeply interconnected world and we have to sort of answer problems like resource allocation and climate change right together um, in ways that allow people to thrive and and I feel like the immigration narrative is you know if, if we get too caught up in you know should should someone who commits a crime be able to stay here that misses the bigger picture about why people are moving in the first place um, how our policies are impacting on people across borders and how we need to think about that systematically if we really want um, people to be able to sort of live where they uh, where they want to live and, and thrive where they are I'm glad I asked that question uh, I appreciate your 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 view and input on that Professor Chacon, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to thepeel.news anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, Unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>